0: Picture this. You're at work and a colleague you enjoy from another department swings by your desk to see if you'd be interested in participating in a committee about something. You, as someone who is pretty interested in something, ask to see whatever it is that there might be to look at, an email with bullet points, a flyer complete with infographics, and ultimately you decide to participate in that committee. According to your colleague, and the information on the e-flyer or whatever, The committee only meets every so often and just asks of you only so much. However, it does not take long to realize this committee is a way bigger commitment than you were ready for. Now you're up nights and weekends finishing drafts of documents or providing notes on the latest iteration of slides. You're saying no to fun social activities with friends and family because this extracurricular committee activity has ballooned to such a point that it feels like it's weighing on all aspects of your life. Have you ever had something like this happen to you? Are you talking to me or are you talking to the
1: listeners? Yes, you,
0: them, both. I'm talking to everybody.
1: Okay, great. I do know the thing that you're talking about and that thing that it like starts and it's supposed to be this big thing, but it grows and grows to something much bigger.
0: To me, that's kind of how life with hemophilia has gone. I first understood it to be one thing that impacted me in these definable ways. Then I learned it's much more than that. Then later still, I learned it's even more than that. Sitting here now, two and a half weeks out from the first surgical operation I ever needed as a result of hemophilia, thinking about the new freedoms and restrictions on my post-op life, I'm reminded that whether it be about something personal or professional, family-related or social, physical or creative, everything in my life has been and continues to be touched by a rare little bleeding disorder called hemophilia. Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient, advocate, and host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions.
0: On today's show, Michelle Condy of Hemophilia of Georgia joins Amy in an interview recorded a bit earlier this year. We have Peter Z and Taylor Ann Burtz talking about a new podcast in Glanzman's Thrombosemia. And let's talk. Our mental health segment is back with your host, Joshua Sterling Bragg. Today's topic. Acknowledging Your Past, in a segment made possible with support from Sanofi. We have got all of that and more on today's show. Welcome to Bloodstream.
1: Listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for updates on new episode releases.
0: And listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda! Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Amy Board, so do I. I do,
1: too. I do, too.
0: And are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting BleedingDisorders.com. One more time for the folks in the back, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda.
1: Thank you, Takeda. PJL. Amy Board. We're back in the studio together. We are.
0: It feels good in here.
1: It does. It feels nice in here.
0: Keith in the booth. We'll never hear from him, but he's Keith there. Keith
1: in the booth. Keith in the booth. <laughs> So, give us the update on the on the surgery. You came in with crutches.
0: Came in with crutches, came in with a strong story off the top.
1: Good, strong story off the top. Coming
0: in with a lot today. Coming
1: in hot. <laughs> Coming in hot. I've noticed you use one crutch, not two.
0: I'm on the one crutch which today. Which is a
1: pro move.
0: Thank you. Thank you. The two at times has just become more com- I'm like, now I have zero hands. <laughs> I know. I have two things. I know. It's too much. So I'm I'm starting to get... Re- I'm moving toward crutchless. Right. So the step in between two and crutchless is one First crutch.
1: First of all, you are... Terrific on crutches. Oh, thank you very much. That's not. Yeah, I've been competing for years. I was about to say, I was like, it's obvious. This is not your first rodeo, but that would be such a bummer if you had to, like, because you could 100% from the parking lot into the office, like, go on crutches. Like, I I saw you. I've seen you, like, yeah, crush it. Yeah. That would stink, though, if you didn't have, like, another hand for, like, your bag and your things.
0: Yeah. So, like, there's the practical piece of it. So I'm now fully on the one crutch program, uh, at least for the next five, six days, <laughs> until I hopefully will be off the crutches and just hobbling about. Yeah. But, you know, that opening bit, I, it is true. Like, hemophilia is... It's a blood disorder. I don't know if you knew that. But, you know, all the ways in which it impacts life, it just continues to remind me of of those things. And most recently, I've just been reflecting on the fact that I was told by my surgeon that any high-impact activity from this point forward for me is out. Running, what do being you mean, a high-impact yeah, activity. Mean,
1: what do you mean? Like, okay, running.
0: So, like, anything where – like, running, any kind of – if there was jumping. So, you know, basketball, for example, is something that oh. I should no longer be participating in. And just going through the process of, like, okay, yeah, that's all, fine. And I wasn't looking to do these things. And, yeah. I've you know, I've stopped playing and stopped doing – but – It's the difference between my making a choice and someone medical telling me, you can't do this.
1: How often have you been told medically in your life, specifically with hemophilia? No? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's tough. I feel like as a kid, there was just a lot of certain gym activities oh this local youth group has a ski weekend or is going backpacking through a thing and just those were just immediate like I just didn't even bother asking mom I just knew these were off the table but that was
1: your choice like oh I'm not gonna go I'm not gonna ask it wasn't like no you can't
2: do this
0: yeah that's fair it was my choice but it was also a little bit like proactively trying to kind of defend myself from hearing no and rejection just mm. by being like, oh, no, that doesn't apply to me. I can't do that. Mm. You know, shutting myself down before yeah. somebody shuts me down. So I haven't had doctors or medical people often in my life tell me I can't do something. So
1: what was it like having this doctor say you can't?
0: A little stunning. Oh. It was a little yeah. stunning. Yeah. And I, I hear the logic of it. I also appreciate that people are told things by doctors and then we find that they're able to yeah. do more than that. I also don't know that, like, I necessarily want to. You know, I'm not. It's not as though I'm trying to return to something or have aspirations for a certain thing. So it it kind of it kind of becomes like a little bit of an ego question Mm. around like, well, I don't think I actually care if I can do high impact activities, but now I am told I can. (laughs) So now, so maybe now I do. (laughs) So there's, and I'm just like, man, this thing doesn't go away. Like, it's not just about controlling bleeding. It's not just. There's all these different ways that it continues to play into how I have to think about everything, and yeah. that's it is what it is. Ultimately, it is what it is. It's fine. It's exhausting at times, but it just is what it is. Yeah. And we all have our things that we have to think about more often than we'd probably like to. And for me, hemophilia is one of them. But I'm feeling good. I'm. I think I'm where I should be. I, I'm. I'm finding my range of motion feels decent. My pain experience has been. Way down, Ugh. way down. And this point, we're like two like, coming up on two weeks without pain meds. So way
1: it, down, like from the
0: pre-surgery.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so not just like from the surgery of being like, right open, but like your pain has your pain pain has gone down.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that my surge. Now, granted, I was on me- pain medication here for a few days, but yeah. I don't know if my pain as a result of surgery ever got to be as intense as it would be at its worst pre-surgery
1: pre-surgery
0: like my post-op pain was never as bad as my pre-op pain which is a very good sign so so yeah I'm feeling good about it by the time the listeners next hear us on the show I'll hopefully be walking around maybe a little bit with a cane but really starting to like do more weight bearing and from that point forward it's a matter of sort of ramping up and seeing how well I do walking the dog and then starting to try to walk some hills and you know get my back myself back into a, a decent spot one other thing I'll mention quickly before we, we keep moving. You know, next year, Save One Life, our dear friends over at Save One Life, they're doing a big event in Nepal where Bombardier Blood is going to be screened for the Nepal Haemophilia Society and the finally. people of Nepal, yeah. finally. And there's going to be a trek to base camp that's being done as a big fundraiser that Chris is leading. Since this was first floated as an idea, it's been very interesting to me, having not gone to base camp the first time for Bombardier Blood, there's a very personal piece of me that feels like going to base camp would feel like quite a nice bullet at yeah. the end of the whole thing. Yeah. And to do it with Chris, because even if I were to go, what are the odds yeah. I'm going with him? Yeah. And to be there for the screening for the community in Nepal feels like it is literally a once-in-a-lifetime moment that there's just not another opportunity to create. So... I'm very inclined to want to support that World Hemophilia Day 2023. Might find myself in Nepal for a week or more if I can work it out. So I do have this now like 10-day trek. Actually, I have to talk to Rob over here, get his take on the 10-day trek to base camp. Because in terms of high-impact activity at the moment, that's the thing I have my eye on is I would like the option to do base camp 2023.
1: That's cool. That's cool. That's a great goal. And, like, objective and, like, something to work towards. That's very exciting. I
0: think so. And meaningful
1: on things. Yeah. It also looks ridiculously beautiful.
0: It does look ridiculously beautiful. So I hope to see it Like, once in a lifetime, beautiful, yeah. We got three interview guests. We got the latest Let's Talk segment. So there's much to get to. But I do want to take a quick moment before we move into all that stuff. Amy... You were recently on a quick trip as a, that relates to your writing.
1: Yes, and, speaking of goals. And
0: speaking of goals, <laughs> so could you just give the listeners a little update on, on your writing life?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, speaking of goals, I, dear listeners, you guys remember, this was like, it was almost like two years ago. I had this, you know, borderline dumb idea that I was going to write a novel. I was like, I'm just going to write a novel. It's going to be great. And like, no big whoop. And very I think it was a stroke of luck that I found uh, a writing community online. I found a writing school online. It was founded by um, an author, like a a booker, long-listed author. So she absolutely knows what she's talking about. But a very different way and approach to writing a novel, basically through storytelling. Like, you know, it's not really about the sentence. It's not really about your prose. It's truly about story and all that stuff comes later. Like, all that stuff is just natural to you. So it's this wonderful... It's been this wonderful experience and in terms of goal setting I've been kinda of shocked how much I've loved it, how much it hasn't impacted my life. It's just been this wonderful addition and helped focus my life in a way. It's mm. I just do it in the morning and then, you know, I go to work and then, you know, hang out with uh, my fiance, with my friends and things. It, it has not taken away anything. It's just been this lovely mm. addition just to keep me like kind of alive creatively. But this weekend um, had an opportunity, the founder of the school, Louise, and then my editor, my personal editor there was in, they were in New York for uh, meetings. They had several meetings and had like just a little cocktail hour if any of the writers, you know, in America wanted to, you know, hang out. And so, just some things kind of aligned that I was able to use points and go. So I do, I flew across the country to meet them, and it was just it was great. It was so great to meet them in person to kind of have you know those connections in person, and it just kind of helped like buoy you know the writing even more just to kind of like build those relationships. Sure. So it was re- it was really lovely. So in terms of like keeping at things, you know, and like, you know, having a goal to work towards, it's been really nice to have that with the writing to like, actually say like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, like each step is, is something that I'm working towards. And I've never really been that way. I've been really in my life kind of all over the place. I haven't been goal focused. And this is like the first time that I have, so it's been kind of nice.
0: Goal-oriented stuff is, you know, there's a reason they preach it, right? It it can really help focus and create the discipline and create the path to success.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's been great.
0: Good for you. Thanks for the update. We'll check back in in the not-too-distant future. Michelle Condi. we're going to hear from her first. Amy, can you give us a bird's-eye view? What are we going to hear from your conversation with Michelle?
1: Oh, my gosh. We're going to hear kind of the backstory of Michelle Condi. She reached out at HFA when we were there in April and just kind of wanted to share her story. She is the Senior Director of Advocacy at the Hemophilia of Georgia. She is a community member, and she has an extremely passionate story and love for this community. So, everybody, please enjoy my interview with Michelle Condi. Thank you. I'm here with Michelle. Michelle, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into working in the bleeding disorder
3: community. Absolutely, I'd be happy to. So my name is Michelle Condi. I am from Duluth, Georgia. Just recently, I just bought a house. (laughs) (laughs) I have lived in Georgia for 15 years, and those 15 years I have been working as a volunteer, intern, and now senior director of policy for Hemophilia of Georgia. It is a dream job. I'm finally in the place where I really feel like I'm making a difference in my community, but
1: it took a very strange path to get there. You know what? One of the things I love about the bleeding disorder community is everybody has these unique, strange paths (laughs) of
3: getting to where they are. So let me hear yours. I want to hear it. Absolutely. So I actually got involved because I was three going on four and my little brother came into this world and I did not want him. I was not interested in his presence in my life, but he brought with him presents that said, you're a big sister and a oh, giant he, teddy bear for oh, me. So, yes. Yes. Obviously, when he came down into this world, he was carrying those just for me, so I thought, this kid's okay. Yes. And from then on, I became his protector. I became the person advocating for him. My poor brother, he has had three parents his whole life. <laughs> Not his choice at all, but we're best friends, and that means that I will do anything to make sure that he's okay. And that, you know, culminates in a lot of different ways, but for me, it meant that I learned to read at four years old by reading the books Raising a Child with Hemophilia, yes. the story of Alexei from the Romanov family. I knew how to say recombinant factor before I knew how to sing along to Barney, so... <laughs> So this was always in my heart. This is always the piece of me that I volunteered. I Any extra time, this is what I was doing. I was advocating, participating in any programs, anything that was interesting. But career-wise, I thought, I'm going to be a corporate lawyer. I'm going to make millions of dollars. I am going to be so rich and just do all the things that all these mean companies want me to do. Yeah. And so I went to law school for a year, and I felt like my soul was being crushed. I was so disappointed in it, and I think it's the lowest point for me emotionally. So I left. I left law school, I left my dream, and I went home and I thought, what now? I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing, but the only thing I knew for sure that like I was going to do with my time was keep volunteering at Hemophilia of Georgia.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I did that. I went to their Washington days a couple of times, I met with legislators. I was thrilled to be doing that, and I went to their days at the Capitol, and I was always happy to be hanging out with them, learning more from them. And then at one point, their CEO at the time, Maria Manahan, told me, if you're not sure what you want to do, why don't you get a master's in something else? Why don't you try public policy? Because you thrive when you're doing this work. She's like, I see you with these legislators, and you know what you're talking about. You're super interested in it. You're incredibly passionate and charismatic. I mean, I appreciate all the compliments, but (laughs) (laughs) I was mostly just fascinated by the idea of taking something I did in my free time and getting paid for it, Yes, which I thought was fabulous. So I did it. I went, I applied immediately. So I really only got a summer off from school. Yeah. (laughs) I got my master's in public policy. I interned at Hemophilia of Georgia. I did data, just studying and doing all kinds of works with their grants department and their research team. Shout out to Denise Chivanes because she is the most wonderful mentor. She is their senior director, I believe, of grants and grant management now. She set me on this path and she set me up for success in the best way possible. So this is a person that she's been in my life since she started at Hemophilia of Georgia. She has always encouraged everyone in my family to follow our goals, our passion. I've seen the difference she made, so I really appreciate her. You know, I had these people that for once in my life, I felt like they're encouraging me. Yes, I feel like I'm on the right path because before it was like, "Mm, this is going to be hard. No, this this path, people were like, you're thriving. This is where you belong. I kept volunteering with Hemophilia of Georgia, kept participating in legislative days. I actually went to work with a different organization that they recommended me to at first because there wasn't an open position. And I grew a lot there. I learned more about policy at Boots on the Ground Experience. I became a policy wonk, which just
1: means nerd, which (laughs) can't help it <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that policy wonk means nerd I it's, mean we're we're a little being true, honest. it's very true yeah. it's true
3: if things get a little wonky it just means that yeah. you're in the weeds with the nerdiness with it it's a delight I love it I took the word and I thought I'm being referred to as a wonk and a nonprofit unicorn let me run with this yes oh yeah you heard that one before. yes it's amazing I'm fine with that so that's I'm great. I just basically means I'm a magical nerd and I'm okay with that. But for me it just became something that on the legislative side, it took pieces of my heart Mm -hmm. and it let me go and run with it and be loud and passionate and really take the skills, take the lived experience that I had. I could talk to people and what I said mattered. And I could have these conversations, build these relationships. Mm. And people were looking to me to get more information. Mm. I have legislators in my phone now that they call me. People wanna hear what I have to say. And I'm able to take these voices from the community because I'm a part of the community. I grew up in it and I'm able to like, you know, Moms don't always get heard. Women in the community don't always get heard. When you're a kid, your voice is like, this hurts and that's all they want to hear from you. Mm. But I'm able to like take what these kids, these moms, these young adults are saying and I'm able to take it back to the community and I'm able to like fight for what they need.
2: Mm. And it
3: feels incredible. Yesterday at the policy workshop, it was about advocacy and it's like finding your fight song. Mm. And that resonated with me so much. Just one, I love the song and I want to sing along to it all the time. (laughs) whenever I hear it, but two, that's what it is, exactly. This is the only way to raise your voice and have it make a difference. Advocacy and policy, they are your opportunity to make a change. When I was studying law, I got frustrated because I was like, it's whoever has the most money is gonna pay me to fight for their cause and it's not always the right one. Right. doing advocacy i know that i can follow my heart and whoever wants to fund the the passions of my heart and i'm able to take it and it's just been amazing when the aca was at risk i wasn't even working this i was still getting my master's and i was able to like go argue with legislators tell them hey this is my family story. This is what I do for a living. I'm not only doing this as a volunteer and because I had some free time, I'm doing this, I'm taking days off of work. Yes. I'm taking the time out of my schedule. I'm here and I'm bearing my soul to you. Right. I'm giving you the facts and I'm telling you why this matters so much
1: for a listener that might be a seasoned advocate or listeners that might be a little hesitant to step into advocacy just unsure that they would know what to say or that they have anything important to say i guess is probably the biggest fear what do you think makes a compelling story in particular for a legislator
3: first of all your story is always important that is the most important piece of it your life matters especially if you're a constituent if you're a person who goes out and votes these people care to hear what you have to say So I tell everyone, you don't need to know the facts. You don't need to know 100%. You don't need to be an expert because you're an expert on your own life story you're the only one who can tell that so that is what you go in there and you talk about Mm. and someone like me I'm there to support you and bring in those hard facts that make these Mm. legislators think I'm there to support I always tell my advocates that whatever they need they go in there they share and if they are unsure about something tag me in because that's what I'm there for I'm there to advocate for them while they're advocating for their community and I think you know every season advocate sometimes gets nervous too and anyone who's starting it's a little bit terrifying. I remember like my first time going to DC and going, walking through the halls of Congress and I was thinking, oh my God, these people are so scary. This is really terrifying. And then last time I'm scheduling these meetings and I'm like, what's up man? Uh Because you have to remind yourself, they are working for you as much as it seems as controversial as it can be. At the end of the day, these people are voted in and out of office and what they do, it reflects poorly or it reflects greatly on them so when they listen and they take these stories and you hear them giving speeches and they're talking about their constituents and saying we can change someone's life by passing or stopping this bill it goes straight to your heart and it goes straight and what everything that they're doing they're doing maybe for a vote but that vote matters and it's gonna change their community whoever's in there is gonna make a huge difference we've seen folks come from across the aisle to support matters in the bleeding disorder community because they hear these stories it's devastating to hear some of these, but it makes such a difference. I have one advocate that I'm so proud of her. Savannah White is one of the strongest young people I know. Mm. She makes me incredibly proud, but Mm. she unfortunately lost her father last year. He had Von Willebrands. He developed cancer and a combination of a few different health conditions ultimately led to his death and she has nonstop been advocating telling these legislators why we need to make some changes not to get too wonky on you there are some bills right now that will help with copay issues that folks are having and i'm more than happy to talk about that in a later time <laughs> without getting too deep into it but she has gone on there she is telling her story holding back tears she's not an expert on this she's a teacher who works in agriculture yeah. studies but she's there asking for this change and then asking me to go into it what like the real policy piece of it but she's telling her story how she saw her father struggle in the last days of his life telling the people how her family were thinking about the bills the last thing they should have been thinking about were those bills that were going to come because of this health crisis that they were facing but it was the first thing that was on their mind right so she was there she's holding back tears sharing her story but she's doing it Yeah. And it makes a difference. We've seen more people sign on to this piece of legislation. We've seen Republicans that weren't interested say, tell me more. How can I help? And I think that is the absolute best thing you can hear from anyone. doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on. If they say, I want to learn more. Once they say they want to be a part of it, you know, you have someone that you can rely on. You have an ally. And we're so proud of that. For me, this has been the craziest journey that I've had in my life <laughs> it took me from a place that I thought for years this is what I'm gonna do hundred mm-hmm. percent and can see, that's just what I do in my free time I do it for fun I do it because I don't want to see my mom sad or my brother like struggling anymore I didn't think about it as something that I could help so many other people with yeah because it came from just a personal story because for us my brother was diagnosed like right when he was born my mom knew about hemophilia But she didn't know what it entailed. She knew it existed because her older brother had it. But when he got sick, they would just take him away. Hush, hush, go to the hospital. She grew up in Guatemala. So it's a totally different culture, the way things are done. So she didn't understand what it meant. When my brother was born and they told her, he's going to need factor. He's going to need this and that. She panicked. She did not want to give him factor. Mm. She's like, you're putting my child's health at risk. This is not okay. I've seen what happened to my brother. The only part that she knew about him was that he got hepatitis from the treatment that they gave him for hemophilia. And she's like, nope. We can't do that my kid cannot get that right so developments and changes were something that were totally new to her and still because we weren't immediately plugged into the community when my brother was first born because my mom was an immigrant she was like still learning what was going on she was still getting these bills that were tens of thousands of dollars Mm. that she just had to make payment plans for because nobody was telling her hey we can help you this is how it goes and so for me i just still have it so ingrained in my mind reading those books or struggling to read them when I was a kid at like midnight, watching my mom go over these piles of bills and just like silently crying. Mm. And there wasn't anything I could do as a child to help her. I could just keep her company and give her a hug occasionally. There wasn't much else I could do. So for me, it was incredibly important to protect my brother, first of all. That was my duty. I was like his superhero when he needed it. (laughs) I would tell his friends, I would put my hand on my hip, stand in front of them and be like, hey, be careful when you're playing with him because he has hemophilia ah. and they're like what is that ah. and i was like it means if you hurt him i'm gonna hurt you <laughs> oh God. yes and then i would take them to the refrigerator and be like you see what this is and they're like food and they're like no that's medicine and i point to them and i'm like and that medicine costs more than your parents oh house God. <laughs> So they would be like, oh, and I would tell them, if Lewis gets really hurt, he has to use this. So you don't want that to happen. And they would, of course, be terrified. But then we've had so many of his friends that were like, what does that mean? I don't want Lewis to get hurt. I love Lewis. And they ended up becoming volunteers. One of his best friends has been like a counselor for I don't even know how many years at camp now. So great. It's amazing how we've been able to plug in our Folks are just yeah. people from our lives yeah. to become part of this yes. community. And I think it's one of the best things because like, you just don't stop talking about it. Right. You can talk about it ad nauseum, but eventually you're gonna get someone who's like very interested and wants to help and wants to do more. I've had folks, they maybe are a completely different side politically than I am at one point or another. And I'm like, I don't care what side you're on. I just want you to know why this matters. Because unfortunately there's some pieces of legislation that are really controversial just depending on what side you are politically. And I'm like, you know, my brother, you've seen the difference. You've seen him with a helmet on his head, Mm -hmm. pale, covered in bruises. And you see him now, you see how he's like six feet tall, Mm -hmm. bodybuilding, Mm -hmm. super successful Mm -hmm. in his career. The only reason that was able to happen was because things changed. There was legislation that let him have better insurance, that let him have a better life. If something happens to that, you take that away from him and you take that away from so many other kids that could do so many more amazing things in this world. Mm. So. Just do, I feel like I've gone into total tangent (laughs) No, it's great, we really appreciate it. Absolutely, no, like I said, I'm never gonna stop talking about this. It doesn't matter if my career ever changes at some point, this is still one I'm gonna be discussing. It's gonna be what I'm telling people about because it's so close, it's so near and dear to my heart. Right. It means everything to me because this is my family. Everyone I meet here is my family immediately. I just have that immediate connection because at one point or another, we've all been through the same thing. Right. We've all had that fear, that panic. We all share parts of the same story, but there's always a unique twist on them. And so we all should keep talking and we should all keep saying, this matters, my life matters. Because it does, at the end of the day, your story is 100% what is gonna change somebody's mind. You can give them the facts and figures, and they'll hear that, they'll appreciate that. But if it doesn't come from a personal place, it doesn't make that same impact. So being able to connect just a face, a story, a name, with the 1700 folks in Georgia that have a bleeding disorder. That's where you get legislators to listen to. you. We have our hemophilia advisory board in Georgia. I am the chair of that and we're able to work with doctors. We're able to work with just folks in the community. We bring them on and we submit a report straight to the governor's office every year and they actually listen. And it's amazing to see that. It's amazing to know that Hey, the governor knows what hemophilia is right. heads of these public health departments they know what hemophilia is and they care and they want to hear the stories they want to take the time they want to talk to us they want to visit us i'm setting up appointments for them to visit our new telehealth clinic them to, um, to visit our new offices and it's amazing to like hear people say i want to know more yeah. i want to know all about this because i feel like the bleeding disorder community stands apart from so many other rare disease groups right What we do, we've made it an art form. We are able to really be persuasive. We're able to talk and talk and talk and talk to each other, build our community and stand strong with each other. And I think that makes the biggest impact of all just being able to build that. Our community, our stories, they go hand in hand and they are what makes the biggest difference and what allows us to do well what we do
1: every day. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. This was tremendous. Where can folks find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Where can they find you? So you can always find me on LinkedIn. I think that is the best place to
3: connect with me. I'm also on Twitter. If you want to reach out there, it is Ola Mishi.
0: What? <laughs> Spell it's been it. there a long time. So that's just hi, Mishi. <laughs> so it's
3: H O L A M I S H I. I'm always available. I'm happy to talk to anyone who's interested. Advocating makes a huge difference. I want everyone to do it for whatever personal cause you have. It doesn't have to be a bleeding disorder. It's super easy, too. I promise it's not as scary as it sounds. And I'm always happy to help give any tips and tricks that I have. And please reach out. I'm always happy to talk to anyone about this.
1: Here, here, And thank <laughs> you for being with us on Bloodstream. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Michelle Condi, And thank you, Amy, for that excellent interview. Moving now into our Let's Talk segment, uh, Let's Talk Mental Health, led by Joshua Sterling Bragg. Today's topic, Acknowledging Your Past. It's an important topic and an important segment here that's made possible by Sanofi. Let's Talk is a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi and aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorders community. Let's Talk strives to shed light on the topics that are often invisible and not often spoke of in the community and shares tips on how to care for your or a loved one's mental health. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. Sanofi is proud to sponsor this podcast segment because they believe that each one of us has a story. Visit shareyourwhy.com to meet the Sanofi core team and hear from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. And now, on to this episode's
4: Let's Talk. October is my favorite month. I love the fall colors, the cool air. In October, everything starts to change. It's a period of death with flowers and leaves crumbling to dust, worked back into the soil with the promise of rebirth after six chilly months of change and reflection. It's also spooky season where my affinity or obsession, some might call it, of horror movies and ghosts and ghouls gets conveniently mixed in with pumpkin lattes and cinnamon brooms and children's costumes, where classroom windows are covered with construction paper bats and the twisted faces of jack-o'-lanterns light up our neighbor's porches. This is the season of ghosts, and that's exactly what we're talking about tonight. Or this morning. Whenever you're listening to this. Whatever. Tonight sounds spookier. Let's talk. Okay, wait, 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 hold on. This is not what you think. It isn't going to be some messed up horror story that you have to skip. There's actually a whole other intro that I put together that makes so much more sense. But once I realized we were going to talk about ghosts, well, I couldn't help myself but do a spooky intro. So let me explain and we'll get back to the ghosts in a bit. So there are those of us who fixate on their past experiences and those who longingly look forward towards the future. And then there are people like me. I don't know if it's because of my place on the aphantasia spectrum, the absence of an ability to visualize with my mind's eye, or if it's just who I am as a person in the spectrum of humanity, but I tend to sit somewhere in the middle, living for the now. And this doesn't mean that I'm fully present, achieving nirvana-level clarity. No, 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 I'm just as bogged down with thoughts and fears and hopes and dreams as anybody else but it takes a lot of effort for me to escape the mental trap of the current circumstances and imagine or manifest a clear path forward, and a lot of times a clear path backwards through time. Memories fade quickly for me. They are stored away, ready to come back in dense detail sometimes, but because I can't pull up visuals, I don't often go there on my own. Some of you might be thinking this is a gift, that you wish you could erase parts of your past or forget certain traumas, that you could wake up one day and forget about where you came from and all the mistakes that you made when you were a reckless teenager. I get that. I do. I feel that way sometimes. Even though I don't have the visuals, I do have the words to describe all the stupid decisions I made in middle school and high school and and college. I do have the audio playback feature in my head that replays fights that ended friendships and relationships, the alternate endings that I wish had played out, or even the alternate beginnings that would have kept me and my loved ones out of harm's way. But ultimately, no matter how we do it, no matter how we pull it back, be it through imagery, auditory memory, or from looking at time hop every day, it is an essential part of who we are as humans to acknowledge our past For without all of those mistakes and blessings and mishaps and missteps, I am not me, and you are not you. Let's talk. Trauma is the real thing that makes it hard to look back. I've mentioned in previous segments about my knee injury that took skateboarding away from me, my best friend surviving a 60 foot fall from a cliff onto solid rock, and I'm not the only one who's talked about the birth of my goddaughter, Vivian B. Lynch, and what an intense and scary experience that was for Natalie and Patrick and I. But what I haven't talked about, at least I don't think so anyway, is that I was once married to a different person than my wife. I don't like to bring it up. We were young. We didn't have kids, and the circumstances of the split were entirely out of my control. The short of it is I was in my mid-20s, and she was in her early 20s, and she fell in love with somebody else, and I was so trusting of her relationship with this friend, I became blind to it happening right in front of me. Had I told you this story seven years ago, it would have involved extraneous details about rumors and misplaced trust about friendships and business relationships, secret sex lies, falling out of love with the only city I ever wanted to live in, and so much roller derby and even as I'm telling you this, there are strong emotions that come rushing back, or actually, that's not true they're They're more like shadows of emotions, ghosts, if you will, the ghosts of feelings past, yeah. I like that. Because I'm not upset anymore. In fact, I'm, I'm grateful. Easy to say, right? It's what we all strive for. The ability to say the past made me who I am. And look, I found my person. Courtney and I have been happily married since the beginning of the pandemic, and we both agree that our bond has only gotten stronger over the years. We're best friends. So of course I can say the past is the past, namaste, and move on, right? I've got it easy because I found somebody new, but if I could only know, if I could only see for a day what it's like for someone who hasn't found that person, well, I would really know how hard it is, right? Hmm. I know that thinking. I've been aboard that train of thought, and that's a slippery slope, my friends, because it wasn't like meeting my wife was this magical moment of perfection it wasn't like every new experience with this new person was actively healing my past (laughs) no like all humans in their late 20s and early 30s we both came with baggage in fact i was still married for the first two years of our relationship yeah yikes legally mind you No, ex-wife left suddenly one evening with no warning, just a speech about incompatibility followed by I'm never coming back and a few lies sewn in between. Ah, There's that ghost again, ready to pop up the second I travel back and start digging up the details. And look, ghosts are scary. More scary to some than others, but if you're someone who is fixated on the past, who lives with your daydreams and memories, the ghosts of trauma can be really frightening. Courtney and I were both living with unhealed trauma, and that made the beginning of our relationship challenging. And those wounds were filled with ghosts. Ghosts that, when looked at, seemed terrifying and unmanageable. Stephen King wrote a sequel to The Shining called Dr. Sleep that follows Danny as an adult. Danny boy? Mike Flanagan directed the film adaptation and its absolute perfection. I mean, one of my all-time favorite scary movies. If you've never seen The Shining, it's about a man who takes a job as the sole caretaker of a massive hotel in the mountains for the heavy part of winter, tasked with keeping the pipes warm and making sure the place doesn't get damaged in the deep, deep cold for the months that the mountain roads are impassable. Wow.
2: Well, that
0: is uh,
4: quite a story. Jack brings his wife Wendy and his son Danny with him, and they intend to spend the winter getting some writing done and being a family.
0: Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me, and it will then take me time to get back to where I was.
4: The problem is, Jack starts to lose his mind, and the hotel is filled with ghosts. Ghosts that Danny discovers he can see because of his gift, which he calls The Shining. It's a scary movie. One of the all-time classics. Despite it being vastly different than the book, it's just as good. Okay, so in the sequel, the son is all grown up. But see, he's traumatized by the events of his past. And because of his gift, his clairvoyance, he's also haunted by the ghosts of the hotel. So what he's learned to do over the years is to create boxes in his mind to trap these ghosts. He walls them up. And when we meet Danny as an adult in the beginning of Doctor Sleep, he's battered. Unbalanced and numb. In a previous segment I talked about being in a similar place when I started therapy. Of having so many walls built around my traumas that I lost my sense of self. I couldn't remember the last time that I smiled or laughed or felt anything other than emptiness and sadness. I had built so many walls that I ended up in my own garden maze filled with boxes of ghosts with no recollection of how to get out. Of how to solve the maze. When I got myself into therapy and I started to confront these spirits, these revenants of strong emotions, it was only when I looked them in the eye that things started to change. When I told my therapist about the night Vivian was born, I wept. Hard. The memory was so strong and it built so much power up that it was terrifying to even say the words. For someone who doesn't see in their mind, I was confronted that day with graphic snapshots of the most intense moments from that night. That's the thing about trauma. It can be so powerful that it defies all logic and becomes what feels like supernatural. I experienced a break or a tear through my aphantasia directly into the past, flashing like lightning in the storm of recollection, and when it finished... When the story was done and the clouds had parted and I was back on my couch with my therapist listening intently on the Zoom call, she said, are you okay? And I said, yes. And she said, are you still alive? And I said, yes, and I laughed. (laughs) Week after week, month after month, we opened the boxes and looked at the ghosts inside. We talked through the traumas and reflected on the experience. We got curious about why the feelings were so strong, about why I had locked them away and reflected in the aftermath on how to avoid making boxes in the future. This process of confrontation, while always scary at the start, continued to break down the garden maze. The leaves turned, rotted and fell to the ground branches were trimmed down, and eventually, I was standing in an open field of memory and emotion, able to navigate freely in any direction. See, the thing about ghosts, and this is always the case, is they just want to be seen and heard and acknowledged. They aren't there to scare you. They might be scaring you, but that's not their intention. They want something from you, yes, but that is not your soul it's not your life force your light your energy no what they want is to be acknowledged to be validated to finish their business and move on into the bright beyond finally laid to rest there's always more trauma that's a part of life but with the proper tools the right mindset and time and dedication it can be manageable my ghosts still live with me I'll always be a person who was married and divorced before I found my person. But now, instead of a dark secret building negative energy, it's just a part of who I am. It got me here, to where I belong. And not everyone listening to this is going to be where they belong. For some, the road ahead is blocked off by creatures darker than I've been challenged with in my own life. But the thing about creatures is, they're always misunderstood. Thank you to Amy and Patrick for giving me a place to talk about these things. Talking can be so healing. If you're on your own mental health journey, but don't know where to go next, check out letstalkmh.com and click resources. Next episode, Jessica will dive deeper into the concept of acknowledging your past in her segment, The Well, and as for us, well, let's talk next month.
0: Listeners, reminder to check out Let's Talkmh.com or click on the Let's Talk banner on the Bloodstream podcast page on bloodstreammedia.com for more. And thank you, Sanofi, for your partnership on all things Let's Talk. From a special segment to a whole new podcast, Amy... <laughs> Who are Peter and Taylor Ann and what brought them to Bloodstream?
1: Peter and Taylor Ann are wonderful. They are from the Glansman's Research Foundation. And the thing that I loved about talking with them is Uh they are an old school story about grassroots advocacy starting with families. Mm. With Taylor's mom, actually, she was the one that started the organization. Mm. So it just has a long history of just doing things in a really grassroots way and making things happen. They fund a researcher. That's what the organization is for. But I think something that's interesting actually for our listeners is that Glansman's is misdiagnosis von Willebrand's disease quite often. Oh, I didn't know that. So listeners, check out my interview with Peter Z and Taylor Ann here. And if you're having diagnosis issues, maybe you could, I don't know, look at it and see if maybe it could possibly be Glansman's.
0: Wow. Interesting. Okay. Let's take a listen.
1: I am joined here by two members of the Glansman Research Foundation, Taylor and Peter. Welcome to Bloodstream. Thank you so much for joining me today.
5: Thanks for having us. Thank you
2: for having us. Yeah.
1: So tell me a little bit about your stories. How did you get involved with the organization? You both are affected personally and within your family. So tell me a little bit about the origins of the
2: organization. Taylor, I'll start with you. So this all started with my little sister, Julia. Julia. She was diagnosed within six months of being born and about, she was born in 98. So in 2001, my mom had actually found a researcher who was working towards a cure for GT and decided that she was going to create this foundation to help support him in his research and also provide a way for people with GT to be able to reach other people who are affected as well. Peter what's your connection
1: to the organization?
5: I was actually diagnosed with it at eight months old. For a while just kind of grew up thinking I was the only one with Glansman's that I'd ever know and then we stumbled upon the Glansman's Research Foundation forum at the time and my mother got connected with Taylor's mom and then I went to my first meetup with everybody and that's how Everything kind of started with the Glansman's Research Foundation.
1: Classic rare disease story. I love that. Just family members making things happen. That's that's terrific. Peter, tell me a little bit about GT. It's very similar to hemophilia and von Willebrand's disease in terms of symptoms. But I think from a science perspective, it's fascinating. And I think some of our science nerds would love to hear about it. So tell me a little bit. What is GT?
5: Well, I'm not going to give you the scientific... (laughs) (laughs) Fair. That's, fair. That's fair. That's <laughs> fair. I know it's it's commonly diagnosed as von Willebrands when it's first being found out. And basically, our platelets are missing a protein that makes them less sticky. So our bleeding does stop, but it takes a lot longer than normal.
1: Mm. Tell me about the symptoms. What has your experience been like with GT over your life?
5: It nosebleeds. And bruising and gum bleeds. I'd say bruising and nosebleeds are very common for children when it first starts out and probably how everyone's diagnosed. And then as it continues, it's just the nosebleeds a lot and the bruising.
1: And Taylor, tell me about the gaps in care and diagnosis for GT. Is there an issue? Peter mentioned that sometimes it's misdiagnosed. What's that journey like?
2: And what are some of the gaps in care? So we have noticed that People who present with a less severe type of GT tend to get their diagnosis much later on in life because they're not showing, you know, those severe bleeds or anything. But the biggest thing is that the normal treatment for a bleed and for bleeding protocol and everything is to go ahead and put platelets in. But if your body has non functioning platelets, your body's going to potentially build up those antibodies much more quickly. And so, they do have the option to use Novo7, so the factor recombinant factor 7a, and that has helped, and that was FDA-approved not too long ago. But other than that, it's just really having providers themselves educated as to what Glanzman's is and making sure they get the correct treatment because it can really turn into a life-or-death situation pretty quickly, especially when it is a child. You can have those life-threatening nosebleeds where you You just didn't realize that a bleed was going on and dripping down like maybe it's a posterior nosebleed. And so it's dripping down the back and the parents just aren't really aware until all of a sudden, you know, you've got your hemoglobin down to about a five or a six. And now you're faced with these decisions of do we do platelets? What do we do? And those are those decisions where in the moment you're being pushed towards a certain answer. But long term wise, if that's your go to answer every time. 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, that could potentially not even be an option anymore. And why wouldn't that be an option anymore? Because of those antibodies. Okay. Once they build up antibodies in those platelets, you have to then go through and match the platelets more specifically to each person. And that makes it more difficult for you to be able to find it in an emergency situation.
1: Taylor and Peter, when a family is going through that diagnosis journey, what are some signs that it is Glanzmann's rather than
2: von Willebrand's disease or another bleeding disorder? Honestly, the biggest thing is they have to do that platelet aggregation test. That's going to be your big thing that really answers that question because the symptoms are very similar. Mm-hmm.
1: And tell me a little bit, Taylor, about the organization. It was started, of course, by your mom. It was started for research. And tell me a little bit about the work that you do, the money that you raise, and what the research is currently uh, working on.
2: So we have definitely grown throughout the years, the 20 plus years that we've been in existence. So it did start out as just kind of being this small like hometown organization where we would do one annual fundraiser and then that bit of money that we raised in that moment, we would send over. And then the invention of Facebook happened. (laughs) And so then our Facebook group came to life. It actually was somebody within our community who started it. And then everybody just kind of joined it. And then eventually at some point, I can't even remember how long ago it was, but she basically relinquished the administrative rights over to mom and over to Peter And that's how the group itself became affiliated with the foundation. And so this place is just, it's such a great area to just go in and talk to other people who are potentially having the same situation that you are. It's an amazing resource for new parents. And then we use it as like a sounding board as well Mm -hmm. because when peter and i stepped up in the foundation and everything we we relaunched the website website design and everything we were constantly asking the community like hey what do you think about this what information would you like to see on there what do you think should be available to the public and what do you want the public to be able to know and if a provider were to go to this website what do you want them to see we turned into like a very big like patient advocacy type deal as i feel like any organization helping somebody with any type of disorder should do at some point like that's your that should be your main focus is the people that you are trying to help and so now that we've kind of got our foothold back the pandemic is easing off some and everything we're really excited because we really want to start getting more and more physical activities going trying to meet up in person because it's such a big deal for people who have such a rare condition to be able to meet someone else who's going through something similar.
1: And how many patients do you currently serve? How many patients are in the US, do you think?
2: So, so we think that we think that in the US there's probably about 500. Oh. That's wow. But yeah. that's rare. But I is, did not anticipate that yeah. number. <laughs>
5: Our tagline is one in a million, so. Yeah.
2: And we also have international community, too. So we've got a bunch of people from England. We have people from Italy. I think we, we've we got people over in Sweden as well. That is terrific. I know,
1: I know Facebook gets a hard time, but let me tell you, for these rare disease communities, it's just this wonderful resource. So hats it off is. to y'all. It's terrific. Peter, tell me a little bit about your work with the organization and some of the things that you were doing to contribute to the work.
5: Like Taylor said, I started out with the Facebook group and just kind of took it over to make sure everything was running smoothly. I was kind of just a silent partner there, making sure we're all following the rules and posting helpful things for everybody. Then I was asked to be the vice president of the foundation. when We did our rebranding and took a big role in the website and a little bit larger role on the front line.
2: That's terrific. He's my go-to. So anything technology-wise, anything like that, I'm like, is this even possible, Peter? And he's like, I'll figure it out.
1: (laughs) Oh, every organization needs somebody who would be like, I'll figure it out. That's terrific. Yeah, exactly. That is terrific. Taylor, where can listeners learn a little bit more about Glansman and to get involved in the organization?
2: So you can find us at www.curegt.org. C-U-R-E-G-T dot org. It has bios on our entire board. Our entire board is built up of people who are either caretakers or people with GT. And then it also has information on our researcher that we fund as well as where he's at with his research, which is gene therapy. So, you know, we're right on the cusp of so many breaking things with gene therapy right now. And then just, it gives a great background. There's an amazing part of it that mom actually started with our first website ever, which was like a Faces of GT where people put their own stories out there. And so we're very proud of that part. And we always encourage anybody who has it and who feels comfortable enough to share their story to submit it and we can get it up.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that. That was actually my favorite part of the website as well. (laughs) What a wonderful snapshot into your community. And you can really tell that you are people-based and doing the good work for your community. So thank you both for being here. Again, listeners, please check out the website, curegt.org, or click the link in the program notes. Taylor, Peter, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you,
2: Amy.
0: Thank you, Peter, Taylor, Ann, Michelle, and Josh for contributing to today's episode. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, and to our segment sponsor, Sanofi. Amy and I are back again on Friday, November 11th, moving into November. Amy, oh board, unbelievably, uh, and Aww. what can listeners expect to hear on the November 11th episode?
1: Well, we've got a whopper. You actually we interviewed. Have a whopper. Aaron Willis. Tell. <laughs> yeah. d- d- I mean, th- this was your interview. this, so. this
0: was my interview. <laughs> this was my. This <laughs> was Coppola.
1: my episode where I had the yeah, interview's big next. Deal me. Um, next time is you.
0: Aaron Willis is very interesting. She kind of sits in an intersection of marketing, healthcare, and and patient advocacy she is a lead author on a on a study that's now been published as well on patient influencers and sort of like the gray area of is this valuable good is this problematic very interesting. Someone had shared an article with me a few months back, a couple few months back when it was first published. So we invited her on, had to reschedule a little bit, but just spoke to her, I think like a few days ago. And great conversation, great energy, clearly an expert in these different you know, roads that intersect and, mm-hmm. and, and can articulate some of the nuances of, of this very well. So loved having her on. Frankly, I think we only skimmed the surface, oh. but listeners, you'll hear, and if you want to hear more from her, let us know. We'll have Erin on back. And with that, Amy Board, that is all for this episode. Reminder, listeners, to subscribe to the Bloodstream podcast wherever you listen and to share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, anyone you know. And if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, give us a shout at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com.
1: You can also use mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited's Films, we that? are always casting something it's our new <laughs> tagline <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's it, it believe well be. limited we are always casting something you can connect with bloodstream and me you can connect with me wow. personally or patrick james lynch my good pal on social media we're on all the things
0: i am your host patrick james lynch <laughs>
1: and i am your other host amy board and
0: until next time take self care of yourself bye everybody Bye,
1: bye